0: well, I trust you're still in John chapter 1, or now you know where it is at least. And so let's uh, continue to, to to do that. So turn to John chapter 1 again if, if you're not already there. And as you turn there, let me just pray that God would uh, bless, continue to bless our time of, of worship this morning. And, and Father, that is our prayer. We pray that you would uh, be with us as we turn our attention to your word, more to study it more closely. We pray that you would cause our, our hearts to, to love it because we love you. That the Holy Spirit would work through these words to change our, our lives and to change our, our understanding of you. And Lord, as we deal with just some deep truths about you this morning, we pray that you'd give us your grace. And we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're here in John chapter 1 verse 1, and as you look at John chapter 1 verse 1 this morning with me, uh, a question you, you might ask is, is this really a Christmas passage, Daniel? I mean, I don't see any sheep here, there's no oxen, no starry night, no angels, what's the deal? Is this really a Christmas passage? And I would ask this question back to to your hypothetical question, uh, what makes a passage Christmassy? What is it that makes a passage Christmassy? And let me say this, and I hope that uh, I don't come off as a little bit of a Scrooge here. Um, but in, in fact, whenever uh, Whitney and I were, were dating, uh, Whitney had this fear that if she married me, she'd be marrying a guy that stopped celebrating Christmas. Uh, some of the things that I, I told her about my the things about Christmas that troubled me. She said, "Man, if I if I end up with this guy, am, am I going to live in this Christmasless house?" Fortunately, I love getting presents, and so <laughs> I'm willing to overlook some inconsistencies about Christmas. But some things kind of bother me about Christmas. Just it just seems like a little bit of a weird holiday sometimes. For example, on the one hand. Christmas is kind of the high point of the church calendar year. I mean, we say Easter is, but, but really, we spend weeks singing Christmas songs and, and talking about Christmas and decorating for Christmas, and so Christmas is really the, the high point in a lot of ways of the church calendar year. But on the other hand, there's no biblical instruction about how to celebrate Christmas. In fact, there's no biblical injunction to even celebrate Christmas. Or another inconsistency is this: on the one hand, we talk a, a lot about how, as Christians as individuals, how much the Lord Jesus Christ means to us in the Christmas season, and, and we say, why well, I love Christmas because I love contemplating the the birth of my Lord and Savior jesus christ and and he 's the center of my worship at Christmas, and then we look at what we do on Christmas, and you wonder, really, is that the case in fact i was ta- I was talking to some uh, people from various churches, and they were talking about how they were going to truncate their Christmas services. They were going to go from two services to one service. I've talked to some individuals who said, yeah, we're, we're probably not going to go to church on Christmas. And I thought, like, really? Now, I'm not saying there's, it's wrong to uh, ever miss church, and sometimes there's some ministries that may take place on a Sunday, and, then, and maybe next week some of you are going to be involved in ministering to family and doing some things like that. I myself have to work on Christmas, so I won't be doing that but but isn't it kind of funny a person saying uh christmas is so important to me i love my lord and savior and they're celebrating his birth and to do it i'm not going to go to his house what really it's kind of like saying to your mom uh hey mom uh, for mother's day we're going to go out to a restaurant without you uh and just on our own we're going to kind of think about how much you mean to us I don't know if that really makes sense. Now, again, there may be different things that God calls a person to do on a a given Sunday, but it is kind of an interesting inconsistency how we say that the Christmas season is all about Jesus, and yet, by the way that we actually do things on Christmas Day, I don't know if that's exactly true. Or another thing that's kind of weird about Christmas to me is we tend to focus on some really minor aspects of the Christmas story. I mean, we spend a lot of time singing songs about starry nights, and that's not really in the text, right? Or we talk about these these sheep and these oxen and, and all these things that really I don't think are the main message of the Christmas story. Reminded of what happened with the Wright brothers, December 1903, the Wright brothers sent their sister Catherine a telegram. And the telegram said, We have flown over 120 feet we'll be home for Christmas. And so Catherine, excited about this, took the telegram to the local newspaper editor and said, you know, I want, to, want you to see what my brother sent me. And the newspaper editor looked at this telegram from the Wright brothers and he said, oh wow, the boys will be home for Christmas. Totally missing the main point. Man had flown. And sometimes I believe we do that with Christmas. We fail to understand the deeper significance of the theological truths that are represented by the Christmas message. And I believe here in John chapter 1, we encounter some of the most crucial truths for us to rightly understand if we're going to rightly understand what is represented, represented by Christmas. Here in John chapter 1, we're going to spend the next couple weeks looking at just really two verses from. John chapter 1. This morning, we're going to look at John chapter 1, and in John chapter 1, we're going to see the, the deity of Jesus, how Jesus Christ is, is fully God, and we're going to spend a lot of time this morning talking about John chapter 1, verse 1. My son and I were in the car this morning, and uh, Austin was asking me, uh, what are you preaching on this morning? I said, Rem- remember we read last night, I'm going I'm to talk about John chapter 1, verse 1 and he was skeptical that I could spend an entire sermon talking on one verse. So the gauntlet has been laid down. We're gonna, we're, but what you're going to see is there's a lot of deep truths just in this one verse, a lot of deep truths about who Jesus Christ is and the deity of Jesus and why that's such an important message. And then next week, we're going to look really mainly at verse 14 as we talk about the humanity of Jesus Christ and the miracle of the incarnation. But this morning we're looking at the, the fullness of Jesus Christ's deity. Now let me give you a little bit of the context before we begin looking at verse 1. If you'll remember, the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, and we believe that the Apostle John lived longer than any of the other disciples following Jesus' resurrection. And the Apostle John lived long enough, to see the message and the story of Jesus Christ distorted in some ways that must have been very painful for him. He saw people begin to tell stories about Jesus that weren't true, to distort the message of Jesus Christ, to distort the story of his life, and it must have caused John a great deal of pain. One of the heresies that sprung up during John's lifetime was a heresy taught by a man named. Uh, Serenthus And Saranthus was a man who taught that Jesus Christ wasn't God at all. He said, no, Jesus Christ was the biological son of both Mary and Joseph, but he lived a very good life, and at his baptism, uh, God descended upon Jesus, and so Jesus Christ was indwelled with God during his earthly ministry, and then God left him right before he was crucified. Then he was crucified, and he rose from the dead, and that's who Jesus was. And so he taught that Jesus Christ, what, wasn't fully divine. According to one person who knew a friend of John the Apostle, John went into a bathhouse in Ephesus one time and found Serenthus there, and he said, let's flee this place, lest the walls of the bathhouse fall upon us, because Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is within. John was deeply concerned by the heresies that were being taught about the Lord that he loved so deeply and so that people were teaching these, these heresies concerning Jesus Christ bothered John at his core, and we believe that's one of the reasons that John wrote the Gospel of John, so that people could rightly understand the message of Jesus and who Jesus was. And so, here in John chapter 1, verse 1, we encounter three truths about Jesus Christ. Three truths that build upon each other, Three truths that reveal to us something very important about the Word, about Jesus Christ. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at these three truths, and we'll see again that each truth kind of builds upon one another. And then we're going to talk about some applications of the truth that kind of culminates in this great truth that Jesus is God. So three truths, and the third truth kind of is the main truth that reveals that Jesus is fully God. And then we're going to talk about some applicational principles of what it means to us that Jesus is fully God. Well, let's look at the first truth that John wants us to know. The first truth that he wants us to know is that the word was eternal. The word was eternal. What does he say there at the beginning of his gospel? He says, "In the beginning was the word." The beginning at the very First point in time at the origin, the first cause, John says, at that moment in time, there was the word. The word was already there. That expression, the word, is a very interesting expression that John uses. His Greek audience, those that were reading his gospel that were Greek, might have understood the word to be this, this vague impersonal force. The Greek word that John uses here is logos, which we get the word logic reason. The Greeks understood the logos, the word, to be this vague, impersonal, creative force that kind of permeated the universe. The Jewish person reading this might have thought that John was talking about God's wisdom. Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 33.6 talks about how uh, by the word of God, the heavens were made. So, both the Greeks and the Jews, as they heard John used this term, the Word, would have thought certain things. And John is helping them rightly understand what the Word of God is. And he says, at the first thing that I want you to understand is at the beginning of time, as, as human history begins, as the stopwatch begins to go and human history begins to take its course, at that moment in time, the Word is already there. The Word has existed before time begins, and before that moment in which human history and the ages begin, the Word is there. You and I know that the Word here is Jesus Christ, and what does Scripture tell us? Jude 25, Jude verse 25 says, uh, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now, and forevermore. And so, Jesus Christ has received glory before time began. Jesus Christ receives glory now, and Jesus Christ is going to continue to receive glory on into eternity. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, that we've been, God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but Because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. So imagine, like, right here, where I'm standing right now is the beginning of time. It's it's when all things begin. And now, you, you know, and you go that way and you have all of human history and all of the history of the universe. Now take one step this way and you have what? Before time. When time doesn't exist. And it's at that moment that God, in Jesus Christ, planned his love for us. This is a really hard concept, I believe, for us to grasp. It's very hard for us to imagine a world before time, a place where one event doesn't follow another event, doesn't follow another event, a time before cause and effect. Most people, I hope most of you in here can remember how you got to whatever seat you're sitting in right now. If you can't, you're probably feeling very disoriented. Why? Because we live in a world of of cause and effect. You know, okay, uh, I came in the front door, and then I talked to so-and-so, I spilled my coffee and kind of tried to clean it up, then I came in, and uh, -and so-and-so was sitting in my normal seat, and I kind of gave him a little dirty look, and then I sat in the place that I normally sit, right? Or that I don't normally sit. Cause, effect, cause, effect, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And, and the amazing thing about Jesus Christ, John says, is that in the beginning, when all the cause and effect things started happening, Jesus was there before that. The Word was eternal. I was reading a very, just a very fascinating book called Cosmic Jackpot. I read it before. I was kind of reading it again a little bit this last week. It's called Cosmic Jackpot, and the subtitle of the book is Why Our Universe is Just Right for Life. Why Our Universe is Just Right for Life. And Paul Davies, who wrote the book, is is not a believer. He's not a Christian. He's a, a secular scientist, but a very brilliant man, a very fair man. And a lot of times, Christians will kind of make fun of people who believe in theories like the Big Bang. will say, well, how can you ever be so stupid as to believe in the Big Bang? Because what caused the Big Bang? Now, I think it's a legitimate question to ask, how do you believe in something that doesn't have a cause? But at the same time, we have to understand that the people who are thinking about these things are, are not stupid. They understand the philosophical implications of their position. Paul Davies, again, who, who doesn't hold to a the idea of a divine God who created all things. Paul Davy kind of wrestles with this question in his book, Cosmic Jackpot. He tells the anecdote of a man who was lecturing on the nature of the universe. And as he's lecturing on the nature of the universe, a woman raises her hand and says, what you're saying is ridiculous. She says, I know for a fact that the entire world rests upon the back of an elephant. And that elephant is standing on top of a turtle. The lecturer is very kind of taken aback, and he says, well, well what's the, the turtle standing on? She goes, don't get smart with me, young man. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> well, then, then what, right? As Paul Davies talks about this, this, rea- this idea of, okay, fine, we say that there's a, a big bang, well, then what? What's after that? listen to what he says. This is very interesting. Remember, this is not coming from a Christian perspective. He says, in order to explain something in the everyday sense, you have to start somewhere. To avoid an infinite regress, a bottomless tower of turtles, you have to at some point accept something is given, something that other people can acknowledge is true without further justification, like a floating super turtle. The trouble is, and listen, this is very insightful, The trouble is, one man's super turtle is another man's laughing stock. He talks about how he has this belief, Paul Davies has this belief, that someday we'll discover this, this theory that explains everything, this theory that's the sum of all theories, and once we grasp this one theory, then we'll understand how something could exist apart from having a cause that we can understand in the normal sense. That's one of his theories. He says, now, some people believe in uh, an infinite number of universes, and so there's an infinite number of universes out there, and and once you have an infinite number of universes, then, of course, we could have a universe like ours in which life exists. Now, he understands that the problem with that theory is, okay, well, where did the, the infinite number of universes come from? And then he says, and, of course, there are some people who believe in God, and he doesn't just dismiss that, but he says that's not where he is. Then he kind of closes with this. He says, it would appear that each of the three positions I've discussed threatens to be ultimately absurd, listen here, and requires us to accept a starting point based on faith. It should be clear from this chapter that all three attempts to explain the world completely eventually hit a wall and demand that something truly huge be accepted on faith alone. And since he's right, even the scientific person at some point has to say, okay, I'm going to accept this as a given and build things on this. But but what about this? John's point here in John chapter 1 verse 1 is that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word has revealed himself to us. God's own testimony to us is that I exist and and I've created all things. I am the first cause, the cause before all other causes. The Word was eternal. The Word existed before time started. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, this next statement I'm going to say, but just one really important thing for us to think about applicationally is the reality that at this moment before time began, this time before, this whatever before time began, God knew us and was mindful of us. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's talking about why God should be blessed, and then in verse 4 he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. At this whatever before time began in eternity past, God has known us and loved us and predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through the word, through Jesus Christ. So the first thing John wants us to understand is that the word was eternal. The word was eternal. In the beginning was the word. At this moment in the beginning when time begins, the word was already there. Now, someone hears that truth, there's kind of a question, right? Okay, says the Jew. What you're saying here in, Gen- in John 1.1 is very similar to what I read in Genesis 1.1. What was the relationship between this Word and God? Well, what does John tell us? That's the second thing. The next thing he tells us is that the Word, the second truth that he wants us to understand is that the Word was in perfect fellowship with God the Father, the Word was in perfect fellowship with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, second truth, and the Word was with God. That word with doesn't just mean like they stood next to each other. That word with describes a type of relationship that existed between these two entities. To the Greek, this would be very surprising because what, Paul, what John is saying is that there's a personification of this word. This word isn't just some vague force that exists out there in the universe. The word is a person. And this word exists in a relationship with the Father. And this relationship, according to the construction that John is using here, this word with describes this, this perfect relationship, this, this oneness of relationship. It's an amazing truth. The word is with God. In fact, Keep your fingers here in John chapter 1. Let me just show you, as we go through a couple other chapters here in in John, how important the relationship between Jesus and the Father is. If you read through the Gospel of John, you'll notice how often Jesus mentions the Father. So, for example, in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, just a couple of chapters later, what does Jesus say in verse 17? John 5, 17, Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and and I am working. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, in their opinion, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And, And Jesus is saying, look, an important thing you need to understand about me is about my relationship with the father. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Go over a chapter to uh, to, uh, John 6 and in John 6 we see this relationship between the father and the son as well. Verse 37, all the, this is John 6:37. All that the father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the oneness that exists between Jesus and his Father? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was with God. There was this oneness of relationship, this oneness of purpose, this oneness of being that, that is hard for us to even comprehend. Even our closest relationships don't come close to the type of unity that exists between the Father and the Son. That is why the deity of Jesus Christ is so important for a person to grasp if they're going to truly understand God. You cannot understand God the Father and reject God the Son. John 8. Turn over to John chapter 8, if you would. And Jesus is having this argument with the Jews. And in John chapter 8, verse 39, the Jews answered him and said, look, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, look, if if you're Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, that I, I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your fathers did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. But listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Isn't that an amazing truth? A person cannot say, I love God, but I don't love Jesus. If a person truly loves God the Father, they will love God the Son. And in our culture, that's a very jarring thing to say, but what you must understand is that God the Father loves God the Son. God the Father and Jesus Christ are in this perfect, harmonious relationship. It's not a relationship that just began with the incarnation. It's a relationship that's existed from eternity past. And you want to say, well, I don't love God the Son, then you don't love God the Father. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know God the Father. It's an important truth. John tells us the Word was eternal. This Word, Jesus Christ, was eternal, and this Word isn't just this vague force that exists and permeates the universe. This Word that was eternal was in perfect fellowship with the Father And then the third truth, and this is the great culmination of what John is trying to communicate to us. The third truth is this. The Word was God. The Word was God. This Word existed from eternity past. What was His relationship with God? Well, they were in perfect fellowship. Why were they in perfect fellowship? Because the Word was God now you can read that there in your translation and, and you can understand it fully but let me give you just a little bit of the the nuance that you see in the original language if, if you look at this in the original language it's a it's an amazing clause that's here at the last part of verse one in fact, one Greek scholar Dan Wallace says this about this verse he says This this passage contains one of the most elegantly terse theological statements one could ever find about the deity of Jesus Christ. Here's what makes this this Greek construction so amazing that John writes here. He does two things in the Greek language that help us rightly understand who Jesus Christ is and the deity of Jesus Christ. The first thing that he does is he moves the word God to the very beginning of his clause. So in Greek, it, it says, God was the Word. Now, in Greek, the word order doesn't determine the subject. The subject of the clause is still the Word, but what he does is he takes that word theos, God, and moves it to the very beginning. And what he's trying to say is, is, is uh, here's what I really want you to understand, is that the Word was was God. He had all the fullness of God, all the, all the deity of God, everything that God was, the Word was. What he's doing there by moving the word theos, God, to the very beginning of that clause, what he's doing is he's preventing the heresy of of Arianism, saying that Jesus was just a God. By moving theos to the beginning, saying, no, it's it's, it's God the Father, or, or the deity that we're talking about is God. Jesus Christ had all the fullness of God. Everything that God was, the Word was. But then he does something else that's very interesting. The second thing that he does its very interesting this clause is he takes off the the definite article, the word the before God. Because if he had left that definite article on theos, if he had left the word the, what he would have been saying is Jesus Christ was the God in terms of the same person. And so by leaving off that that one little word, he's making sure that you understand that the Word and God the Father are not the same person. See what he's doing? He's preventing the heresy of of modalism, of saying that, that God just exists as one person and takes different modes. Sometimes he looks like God the Father, and sometimes he looks like God the Son, and sometimes he looks like God the Holy Spirit. In this one little clause, John is helping us have a right understanding of who Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ was fully God. Every attribute, every characteristic of God, Jesus Christ had. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And yet, at the same time, he and God the Father are not the same person. The Trinity exists as as three people, as three persons, one God. Now, do we understand this doctrine? No. Can we affirm it? Yes. The Word was God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God, existed from eternity past, was in perfect fellowship as a person with God the Father, and was in perfect relationship and fellowship because he was the fullness of God as well. Now, John goes on and tells us some things about the deity of Jesus Christ. He tells us throughout this chapter some amazing things about the work that Jesus Christ was involved in. He says he was in the beginning with God, and and all things were made through the Word, through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. And and then he talks about the the life that was in him. In him was life, and the life was light of men. And so this eternal Word of God that's in perfect fellowship with God the Father is involved in this act of creating all things. 1 Corinthians 8.6. 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, Yet there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1, verse 16, For by him all things were created, this is Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus Christ, this baby that we see in the manger at Christmas, is not just a human baby. You know, whenever I held my my children as as babies, I I, am sure those of you who are parents have wondered the same thing as you've held your children. You think, um, what is this child going to be like? Um, I'm sorry, kids, but uh, I always was kind of, uh, I didn't find the new baby period all that exciting. I, I didn't feel like I had a lot to offer a, you know, two-week-old baby. I, I felt like I could help my, my wife, but I, I didn't really feel like there's you know, I couldn't play catch with them, uh, roll the baby gets old after a while. Um, so there's not that much. And so you just wonder, okay, what's going to happen to this kid? Like, what are they going to be like? Who are they, what are they gonna like? What are they going to like? What are they going to dislike? And, and so it's just a lot of fun to watch your kids get older, right? And you, you find out what this baby is going to be like by looking into the future. There's something different about Jesus, right? As we think about Jesus, this baby in the manger, we understand who he is, Not just by looking to his future, but what? Looking to the past, into eternity. And this child in the manger is not just fully human, although he is fully human, and we'll talk more about that next week. He's also fully God. In him, the fullness of God dwells. And this baby in the manger is also the one who's involved in creating all the universe, and by him all the worlds came into existence. This is a huge thing for us to consider. And many of us, while, while we wouldn't say, I deny that Jesus Christ is God, we deny it in subtle ways. We live in a culture in which Jesus Christ is just one more God up on the shelf. Here's a bunch of authorities in my life, and, and yeah, Jesus Christ, yeah, he's up there somewhere as well. And we fail to understand the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in our lives. It affects the way that we worship. We don't have a sense of awe and and dignity sometimes as we come before the throne of God to engage in worship. It affects us in how we talk about Jesus Christ. Some of us have no fear of taking his name in vain or making jokes about Jesus. Jesus isn't just some guy. Jesus Christ is fully God. Let me give you seven things that I think should happen as you meditate upon this truth that Jesus Christ is fully God. Seven things that I believe should take place as you meditate on this truth. Number one, number one, we are confronted with the reality that only God can bear the full penalty of sin. As we meditate upon this truth that Jesus Christ is fully God, the first thing that, th- one of the first things that I think happens is we're confronted with the truth, the reality, that it's only God that can bear the full penalty of sin. Jesus Christ bears the penalty of our sin, not just because he's a human being, but because he's, he, in him the fullness of God dwells. What does Isaiah tell us? In Isaiah Uh, Isaiah 40, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, verse 6, what does it tell us? That God laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. How could he lay the iniquity of us all on a human being? He couldn't do it unless that human being was simultaneously, infinitely divine. second thing that I think happens as we consider this truth that Jesus Christ is fully God is we are Reminded of the biblical truth that salvation comes only from God. Salvation can only come from God, not from man. Again, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 43:11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Hebrews 2:14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, God Himself, He Himself, Christ Himself, Partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. And so God Himself takes upon flesh because only God Himself could bear the penalty of sin. Salvation can only come from God, only He can be our, only God can mediate between God and man. 1 Timothy 2 5 tells us that. Only God can reveal God. John 14, 9 tells us that. Another thing that I believe happens, number three that happens as we meditate upon this truth that Jesus Christ is fully God, is we realize that our response to Jesus is a response to God, not a response to mere man. Our response to Jesus isn't the response to a man, but a response to God himself. Imagine if you're sitting at a table and your child is kind of talking to you, and, uh, or you're at a table with your friends, and your friends are, just, you know, you have a friend that kind of talks a lot, and she's talking to you, blah, 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 blah. So, okay, I'm, that's, that's interesting. I'm not going to pay attention right now. But then imagine that the President of the United States is sitting at the table next to you and starts saying something to you. Yes, Mr. President. <laughs> Yes, Mr. Obama, there's a love of authority that you respond to. As you think about Jesus Christ's claims, if he's just another human being, you can say, yeah, 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 okay, whatever you say, I'll think about that. But if it's God himself, you must be very careful with how you respond to the message that he proclaims and his authority over your life. So as we think about Jesus Christ as fully God, we're confronted with the reality that only he can bear our sins, we see the biblical truth that salvation can only come from God. We must respond to Jesus as, as God, not man. Number four, we view all other objects of worship as idols. We view all other objects of worship as idols. In fact, Acts chapter 19 has a, we don't have time to, to go through the whole story, but There's something very interesting that happens in Acts 19, beginning in verse 23. It says, There arose at this time no little disturbance concerning the way, that is, concerning Christianity, because a man named Demetrius, who's a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So, there's this guy named Demetrius, and he's involved in making these these statues, these idols. And Paul comes to Ephesus, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people begin responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Demetrius and these silversmiths get very concerned. And why do they get so concerned? Because this is what Demetrius says he says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of this great, goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius the silversmith gets this truth better than a lot of Christians today do. This truth that Jesus Christ, as fully God, should consume the passion of those who accept his claims as God. And you and I should be living lives of of such worship and devotion to our great love, Jesus Christ, that people around us get a little nervous because our lives are manifesting whom we're worshiping. There should be such a change in our demeanor and looking at all of the things in our life as not worthy of objects of worship that it makes other people a little bit uncomfortable as they see our devotion to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a reality that this truth that Jesus Christ is fully God, that's a reality that should be true in our lives. Seeing all other objects of worship as idols. Making the culture around us a little uneasy. Number five. Another fifth truth to kind of think about as we think about applying this, and what happens as we meditate upon this truth that Christ is God, we're careful how we communicate Christ to others. We're careful how we communicate Christ to others. If I was going to, if you were going to, to talk about one of my kids and say, look, I want to tell everyone something, a story about your children, and you started telling someone some stories about my children that weren't true. Be a little uncomfortable with that, right? I said, no, let me, let me correct that story. Um, it wasn't $700 worth of damage. It was only seven, okay? I want to make sure you got the facts right. Now, how much more zealous is God the Father that you communicate accurately who God the Son is? And how much more zealous should we be in communicating Christ accurately to others, given that Jesus Christ is God, it's a big deal to get His message correct. Number six, we seek life only in Jesus Christ. If it's true that He's God, if He's fully God, if it's true that what John says here is true—that in Him was life, and the life was the light of men—that that in in God is. In Jesus as God, if the fullness of, of spiritual life exists, shouldn't we seek our life in him? And then finally, number seven, number seven, what happens is we consider Jesus Christ as God? Number seven, we're, com- comforted, we're comforted by the truth that Jesus Christ has loved us from eternity past. Isn't that an amazing truth? Here's that moment where the stopwatch of human history begins, then you take a step back into whatever, and there's Jesus Christ as the Word, and there's God the Father, and there's God the Holy Spirit, and in that, in that whatever that is before time begins, they're in this perfect relationship with one another, and they're also mindful of who? They're mindful of you. And they're mindful of your need for a savior. And they have a love for you that predates the existence of the universe. From eternity past, they're mindful of you and your soul and your need to be in relationship with them. And from eternity pla- past, they, they come up with this plan to send God the Son as a baby, to live a perfect life in your place and to die on the cross on, on the cross, in your place to rise from the dead, and that by placing your faith in him, you can receive eternal life. We're comforted by the reality that eternal life was given to us by God's love for us in eternity past. And my encouragement to you this morning, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would do so now. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you would find comfort in the life that's offered in his name joy this Christmas season as you contemplate his great love for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that he is fully God and you allowed him to become fully man and through your will have brought us into relationship with you as well. We pray that we'd be faithful to communicate that message very clearly and boldly and with authority on the basis of your name. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.